Hi, I'm Simon Drew, and welcome to the Practical Stoic Podcast, where I dive deep into the ancient philosophy of Stoicism. If you find value in this podcast, then you can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. Otherwise, you can head to simonjedrew.com to find my writings, my music, and also information about my one-on-one coaching. But apart from that, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. Now today I have the pleasure of introducing a return guest on the show uh, who needs absolutely no introduction, though I will give him one. Uh, That is, of course, Kai Whiting. Now, if you haven't heard my previous conversations with Kai, then I definitely recommend checking them out as well. There's a lot of value there and he's, uh, he's always up for a great conversation and uh, and to dig a little bit deeper. And so I, I always enjoy having him on and, and there's a few episodes in the backlog. But if you haven't heard of Kai until now, then what you need to know is that he is a lecturer in sustainability and stoicism. He's highly connected within the stoic community. Everybody who knows anything about stoicism knows Kai and uh, and he knows them. And, uh, and on top of that, He's just an all-round great guy trying to do some good in the world, and and that's that's why I love him, and I, that's why I love having him on the show. And uh, the most important piece of information for today is that he is actually stepping away from uh, the academic realm for for a brief moment, and he's actually releasing his very first book to the public called "Being Better: Stoicism for a World Worth Living In." And I know that Kai's been doing the rounds and promoting the book, and I think it's released in the UK and the US, uh, potentially in Australia, but maybe very soon. Uh, but uh, So if you've already got a copy of the book, then awesome, really glad that you do. But if you haven't already got a copy, then head to the links in the show notes now, grab yourself a copy, because if you're at all interested in this philosophy, then I know you're going to get some really great information from this book. And, uh, you know, Kai and Leo, his uh, co-author, really just do a a great job of diving deep into the lives of even some of the lesser-known Stoics who we don't often talk about today and their influence on the philosophy and their influence on on how it moved forward into, uh, you know, what we now know it as today. And, uh, and so he breaks that down for us, and he also gives us really great concrete examples of, of people in our modern day who are living up to the examples set by the, the, you know, the, the sages of the past, you might say. And so, uh, you know, he just, him and Leo, they just do a great job of taking you on this journey, giving you questions to ask yourself about how you can be applying it in your life, what you can be thinking about in relation to the principles and uh, yeah, you know, I just, I really recommend that you go out and get it. And uh, if if this little spiel at the start doesn't get you to do that, then I know that this conversation will, because, uh, you know, I just went away from this conversation uh, on an absolute high because, uh, you know, Kai knows how to go, you know, into the depths with these sorts of conversations. And he really knows uh, and understands the the theology and the philosophy of Stoicism to a deep extent. And and that's why I love having these conversations with him, because he's uh, he gets it. You know, he really gets it. And uh, and I will be having a conversation later this week with uh, Leo Konstantikos, uh, the co-author, along with Kai, and uh, and I'm excited for that conversation too. But nonetheless, without any further ado, uh, I present to you my conversation with Kai Whiting. 
All right, Kai, man, it is so good to have you back here on the podcast. As we were speaking before we started recording, you know, it's it's been quite a while since we spoke. I know you've been super busy, uh, particularly with uh, this this wonderful book that you've got coming out, uh, Being Better. And uh, and I would really love for you to just uh, open up and, and, and tell me, you know, more about why you wrote the book, uh, what the process was like, who it's intended for, and uh, and what you think it adds to uh, to I guess the stoic canon of works that we see today. Wow, that's a lot of questions. But yes, yeah. being better, <laughs> stoicism for a world worth living in. It's actually out in the US, and I imagine it might be out in the UK by the time this airs. It's coming out on the sixth of May, and I think in Australia you have to wait until the sixth of June. Wow, we always have to question. wait. <laughs> You always have to wait. You're like the biggest <laughs> island in the world and you have to wait yeah. for everything. Yeah, nobody thinks of us down under. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they possibly don't, but it's good for me. You see, now we've got, I, got, I get a wave effect. You know, people read it in America, they talk about it. Yeah. People read it in the UK, they talk about it. And they then they read it in Australia, they talk about it. So it actually benefits me. You know, I don't yeah. have to do everything at the same time. Actually, it's a really interesting question. I will say, I don't think it's part of the Stoic canon. I would say it's possibly part of the contemporary Stoic canon. I wouldn't like to mm. think that it is part of the Stoic canon at all. The reason why we wrote it is that I get really frustrated with self-help because I find it ironic. Um, most self-help tells you if you do A, B, C, D, E, you'll get one, two, three, four, five. That's not self-help by definition. That's just following instructions, right? <laughs> self-help to me, by definition, means how you help yourself. Hmm. And yet most of the books, I'm not talking about story books particularly, I'm talking about in general, say, if you do what I do, you'll get my results. So hmm. I just gave this really silly example of modern stories. I don't know if you saw it, but I said I was really short. I think I told you before, like I'm five foot five. And Leo is a call for his six foot something. So imagine like success in self-help is reaching toilet paper from the top shelf. Hmm. And I ask like, Leo, Leo, how do you reach that toilet paper on the top shelf? He's like, Kai, it's really easy. You go over there, you stand in that exact position and you hold your arms up. So I can imagine doing just that. I'm walking over there and doing like the right T-shirt I'm supposed to be wearing with the right hair that I'm supposed to be having. And I've got the perfume on exactly how they told me in the book. And I stand there and I reach on my arms. I'm like, crap, and I can't reach it. And there's no step ladder. It's like, no, no, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in yourself, your arms will grow and you'll reach that. Like, really? Like, yeah, you just have to believe it. So, you know, I get there and I stand and I'm believing in it. And I'm, like, I'm really looking like a religious person at this point, you know, hallelujah style. I'm really reaching, I'm getting my tiptoes and I don't reach. And that is most self-help. They don't really show like, okay, this worked for me and it probably won't work for you because one, we're different people. Two, we have different preferences. Three, tax, tax breaks in the US are not the same as tax breaks in Australia. So when I say that you can do this to save yourself money, you can't do that in Australia. Hmm. When I tell you that if you do A, B, and C in the American audience, Australians will follow, Australians will say, no, we don't, we're not American hmm. or we're not Australian. So I just found self-help books infuriating personally. I think they're really hmm. good in the beginning when you really don't know much, but when you want to really sort of grab hold of what you think your life is, I think... It's a, it's, a, it's a matter of questions. So I would mm. say my life got better, not because somebody gave me the answers, but because I asked myself better questions. Mm. The quality of my life is that. So if I'm in abject poverty, the question that I ask myself is where would I get food? That is the quality of my question. And I'm not insulting the quality of the question, I'm just saying that's the reality. Mm. Where, is, where am I gonna get food? 
and how full am I going to be? As we get up the ladder of you know hierarchy of Maslow's needs, we start to ask ourselves, how, how can I do something more? Mm. And I do think that most people's lives are poor in the spiritual sense or the emotional sense because they keep asking themselves the same question, things like, why can't I get a boyfriend? Mm. Or why did, why does such and such a person dislike me? Or why can I never get that job? And I'm not going to say that I never ask myself those questions. I do. I just cut myself, you know, like, okay, stop asking that question. That is not conducive to getting whatever you actually want. Because asking mm. yourself, like, why can't I get something isn't as useful as like, okay, so if I did A, could I get B? And if mm. I can't do A because I'm not in that position, how do I get to A so I can get B? That's a much more interesting and useful question rather than a self-pitying question like, why is it always me? Why am I always the person who didn't get the promotion? It's also more realistic. So I'll give you a really frustrating situation. You say, okay, I can never be a stoic philosophy professor. Why? Because I don't have a PhD in philosophy. I have a PhD in sustainable energy. So if I get frustrated because I can't work in a philosophy department per se, well, yeah, I'm going to get frustrated for the whole of my life because I keep asking myself the question, why is it so unfair that I know such and such about stoicism, but because I don't have a PhD in, in, in philosophy, I can't do that. Instead, I started to ask myself better questions, going, okay, maybe I can't tick that box, but what other boxes can I tick? What, mm. what is available to me that might not be available to somebody else because of the character that I am? We were saying before the podcast that I like to put myself on your show a lot. Why? Because mm. I like to reach out to people and perhaps other people don't have that ability. So being there yeah. was like a product of that. It was basically saying self-help is helpful to a point, but once you kind of know who you are and you know what, where your goal is, the next thing you have to do is start helping yourself. Mm. And I just didn't think that in the self-help category, it kind of takes people who don't have any idea. You read that book and you're like, okay, you read the next one. And then you're kind of like, okay, what do I read now? Mm. So it was kind of a response to that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And just, I, I really, I really resonate deeply with that idea that the, the better life that you're kind of aiming at, uh, you know, you need to start by asking better questions. Like that's certainly been my experience over the past, um, you know, past few months and years of my life is that, uh, you know, the deeper the questions that you ask and the, the more meaningful the questions you ask, you know, the better answers you're going to get. And, and, uh, and I, 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 I think that your definition of like the self-help genre is probably leaning towards the direction of like the secret sort of stuff, you know, like that, 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 you know, you believe it, you can do it. And, um, and, and, and so to the extent that that's your definition, I absolutely agree that the, you know, the, the world of, you know, here's your 10 steps to be happy or your 10 steps to get every, you know, every woman that you want or, you know, crush your business or whatever it is, you know, I think that that world is um, uh, just so incestuous, <laughs> you know, it's just like, <laughs> it, you know, it, 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 there's just no bottom to those kinds of books, but something that I've been thinking about lately, and I might want to discuss this with you now is, is that there's a reason. I, I think that there's a reason why we are being drawn back to reading the ancient stoics and the ancient philosophers and i think that one of the reasons is because they weren't trying to give us a 10-step model for how to become the absolute you know best business person you could be or whatever you know and and if there were writers that were doing that back then then we have you know we haven't really 
you know, cared enough to keep them in the public discussion, right? But when I read somebody like Seneca, you know, I feel like he's dealing with deeper questions about himself trying to answer these questions that might be of use to other people. Like he's really diving deep and, and trying to, to figure out uh, uh, really meaningful answers to meaningful uh, problems in life. And to me, I think that's one of the reasons why, yeah, th there's so many people going back to those works. And, and what I see in your work as well in Being Better, I, what I really enjoyed about it was uh, that you, you found influence in many, many of the ancient Stoics but also in many that people might not be acquainted with if they're just diving into the philosophy kind of um, as a side project in their life. You know, people um, who, who obviously are not as public, uh, publicly famous at the moment. Um, and so I wanted to talk to me about, you know, diving into these other influences, not necessarily just from Marcus or Seneca or Epictetus, who are some of your favorite Stoics that you discovered um, that might be lesser known today and, and why are they so important to the, to the whole story of Stoicism? Really good questions. Firstly, we didn't add Seneca at all because it would wind up. I thought, well, from a personal view, I thought if we didn't add Seneca, it would wind him up. <laughs> so I was like, let's not put Seneca in there at all. Actually, Seneca is not very good at principles in terms of teaching you how to live according to a principle. Seneca is really good when you say, I wanted to live to that principle and I messed up. So that's like mm. a sneak preview to the second book. Mm. So we didn't think Seneca was the best example of a principle layer. We thought it was a really, really good example of when you have a principle and you just fall short, how do you pick yourself mm. back up again? So that's, mm. that's a secret into like a... a preview into the second one so we All definitely right. didn't add Seneca because he just wasn't the best example and I was just really personal on a personal level I was just really sad that there was some really great Stoics that only academics had access to more or less because they're in fragments and so it takes a lot of work and quite a bit of imagination too to kind of put things together like okay I have this fragment and I had to do research with Leo on history so we really had to go dig deep into what their realities were because we thought that we should bring these you know, spheres to the attention of the contemporary Stoic community. And I knew academics that hadn't come across spheres. Now, spheres is like, if you're a Christian, he's like the Jonah. He's the first Stoic who goes out with and preaches the good news, you know, from, a, from, a, from a, as much as a preaching we do in Stoicism. And I just thought it was great because I've been criticized you know, publicly for saying that Stoicism was something more than an individualistic um, in, in the self-help sense I was talking about earlier, philosophy. And they're like, no, it's, it's just for us. It's not for the community. It's not for anybody. It's just for you. Like that's what it, it's helping you become calm and reflective. And I'm like, yeah, so explain to me Spheros and how he used it to overthrow an oligarchy in ancient Sparta. And people mm. were like, what? <laughs> I was like, yeah, this, the connection between Sparta and the Stoics is not resilience, particularly in terms of like 300, the film, although I really like it. Mm. It is not that kind of resilient. It's that mental resilience. It's the collective. Spartans didn't really think about the individual. They fought for the, the glory of Sparta, which does come across really well in the film 300. But mm. we forget that, right? So, so Spirit gets invited to say, okay, how do we bring Sparta back to its former glory? 
And he mm. develops principles that turn into what we call the, you know, the, Sp the Spartan school, the agog. He that is the Roman sort of schooling for warriors is based on Stoic principles, and people didn't know that because mm. when we thought about Stoicism, we felt about how do I become calm? How do I realize what's in my control? And I'm not saying that's not important; that's incredibly important. But to me, that's like that's almost like a given. If you went into Epictetus's classroom, Epictetus thought you already knew that. Mm. He was like, okay, you know that the only thing that's in your control is your actions and your attitude. That's like 101. That's stories in 101. Mm. Okay, now where can I take you so that you understand how these principles can serve you and the common good? Because if it doesn't serve the common good, it doesn't serve you. And Marcus Aurelius said, you know, what's not good for the beehive is not good for the bee. And yet in the contemporary stoic um, literature, I just didn't see that being reflected. And I didn't see it because you need to dig really deep into fragments so you've mm. got people like john sellers who who are amazing and i really really like him but he's out he's writing his academic predominant which is great because mm. it serves my purposes and i just was like how do i take you know john sellers's ideas and crystallize it in a form that basically anybody could pick up and read and he mm. didn't do that with lessons and stories but he didn't focus on the examples so when I looked at the historic, historic contemporary literature, I, I saw really good um, principles and guiding um, examples in day-to-day -day life, but I didn't see it brought out in a Stoic-centric sense. Like, okay, so what did Spurious do? And what did Cleomenes the king, the Spartan king, do with the Stoic principles? I'm not going to say what they did because that's, that's part of the book, right? But it was mm. just like, how is it that people don't know this? And I thought, well, you've got the ability. You've got the ability. You're not a philosopher by training. So you know what it's like when you come across philosophical academic writings and you're like, somebody please translate it for me. Yeah. You, you know what that you know what that means. You know what it means when you just would like to have an overview so that you can even get into the academic material if you wanted to and you haven't got it. So yeah. I knew how that felt. And I just felt that it was so unfair, like literally unjust, that we had all these excellent stoics, Poseidonias, Penitus, Cleanthes, Chrysippus, all these stories, and yet we just focused normally on advertisers, Seneca, and Marcus. And mm. there's nothing wrong with that, except that these three rely very heavily on everybody else. So we kind of wanted to construct like the story of the Stoa going from Zeno right away through missing out Seneca for the reasons I just told you to Marcus Aurelius, because it's only, in my personal opinion, by seeing Stoicism is a whole body of text, not just the three main ones, that you mm. really understand the, the, what is a virtue and why that's important for a cosmopolitan message that serves not just you as a person, but a community such as Sparta, or I would argue mm. for a modern day um, society. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it, man. I think it's, it's, it's so important bringing this idea back in, which I, you know, I think that there is that influence coming back in to the kind of stoic discourse today of, well, you know, if here's the way I see it, I, I'm trying to find the right way to put this because there's an idea that's been running through my head, um, you know, that relates to what you're saying here, which is that a true focus on knowing yourself you know, if you engage in that process of trying to know who you are and what your nature is and what it is that you individually bring to the community, it seems to me like there's there's a point 
where the individual nature of you touches the good of the greater community, right? Because you realize that, okay, well, if, if it's true that I have a natural inclination, for example, towards creating music, and if it's true that, you know, other people don't have that, but I do have it, which means that there's something given to me by nature or God or whatever you call it, the cosmos consciousness that, that puts me in a certain position within the, the order of this community called humanity, then I kind of have a duty to dive deeper into that, to really know who I am, to really look after myself and take care of myself to the point where I can start taking care of others in that I'm creating the very thing that I am best suited to create for the community at large. And if that means being an environmental scientist, then the discovery of who you are and the individualistic pursuit of wanting to better yourself should touch the world of helping everybody else, right? And and so to me, I, I actually don't know if the individualistic pursuit and the cosmopolitan pursuit are different. I think that they are the same thing if done properly in the right way towards the right aims. I, I don't know, I'll throw it over. What, what do you think? I'm stealing your quote. <laughs> in the next <laughs> book, I'll steal that. That's exactly right. Yeah. Unfortunately, when I say individualistic though, people don't see it in that strike sense. So I'm really yeah. careful about, although in the book we do say that, like if you, you know, if you actually, we, I thought about you because it says somewhere in, the, in one of the chapters, if you're a musician, then you know write lyrics that that really speak to to people and create beautiful music mm. and so i did think of like different friends of mine who had different skill sets mm. and you're absolutely right if you understand that your god-given or cosmos given purpose is to make beautiful music and to do it so virtually what does that mean that means you know paying your band members for example which is not something that's normally done in the music industry. That means appreciating the fans, which is not necessarily done in the music industry. That means not downloading illegally bootleg copies of other people's music because you are aware that mm. it's hard for you to sell your music. That means not giving mm. your label away for free because it's just a race to the bottom. So you're absolutely right. Once, mm. once somebody understands who they are fundamentally, or at least the journey they're on, because we're always, you know, we are always changing, then yes, you're absolutely right. We start mm. to see that connection and those nodes become a network. So where yeah. we see ourselves in isolation often, and we're quite selfish sometimes in the non-stoic sense, we think, oh no, it's a zero sum game. Or if I lose, someone else wins. If I win, someone else loses, but I must win. Stoicism is not a zero sum game. That's mm. just a theory actually, Yeah. game theory. It's just a theory and it works really well in chess because it's mm. a black and white world, literally. Stoicism yeah. isn't about zero-sum game. If you think that the world is a zero-sum game, you've lost. That's the only yeah. thing they would say because you're denying the fact that you are part of a community. You're denying the fact that your gifts are for everybody's good and your suffering mm. will make others, well, what you what they would call uh, suffering in the non-sexism is that your pain, you would then try to project onto others. And of course, if you're stoic about it, you'd say, well, it's your pain and you deal with it. But that's not how non-sages tend, tend to operate. And I think that's fundamental. Like in that's why also I wanted to connect the notes. For example, people were talking about the Greek stoicism, the classical Greek stoicism, and the Roman stoicism. And I wanted to show with Leo in the book how they connected, so you could see how Panitius knows who he is. He's got a really crusty job. Like he's a really wealthy 
kind of celebrity back in the days, like probably like, I don't know, almost like the Kim Kardashian kind of mm. famous, like all oh, his family are famous and really well respected. And he understands that and he uses that for the great for the greater good. But because yeah. there wasn't really in the in the non-academic sense a connection between the ancient Greek ideas and the Roman ideas, I thought the idea that you've just crystallized I'm gonna borrow was lost because we still mm. talk about the early Stoics, the middle Stoics, and the later Stoics. And I was like, well, Leo, how do we show that it's a journey? That yeah. we're on a journey, not just as individuals, but all of us that are looking towards Eudaimonia are on mm. the same kind of journey. Since at least we're looking all in the same direction, even though yeah. our paths will be slightly different. And I thought that was lost when you just look in isolation at the principles and not the story behind it. The same as what you've just said. Like if you look in isolation about what you're good at and don't think about how that can elevate people around you, then yeah, I think you are lost. And I think the individualism is 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 nothing. There's nothing stoic about it at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that definitely when people hear individualism today, they do think more of that kind of uh, American dream style, you know, uh, you know, go and crush it and get what you want from life um, kind of way of being. But I think um, to your earlier point, when you start asking those deeper questions, uh you, I, I think that by necessity you should come to a point where where you realize, yeah, that you know there's no difference, there's no difference in the stoic sense between taking great care of yourself and taking great care of everything that is external to the extent that you could call anything external. You know, like if you know, I I I think that the more I've explored these ideas and asked different questions, I've realized that there is nothing external really i mean like in the in the truest sense i mean this computer you know is a part of my identity now because i'm talking to you across the ocean and you know you're going to be on my podcast which is also a part of my identity and and you could also say that the people who listen are equally a part of my identity and 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 outwards and outwards like that in those kind of expanding circles and and I think that the more we can realize that, the more we can move in that direction where we start to fall into, I guess, as Sharon LaBelle would say, you know, the seat that is our seat in the theater of life, you know, sit down in that seat. What is it that you're supposed to be doing? If you sit there and if you do that thing that you're supposed to be doing, then hopefully the play is going to be beautiful, you know, but um, one thing I've been thinking about uh, in relation to what you're talking about there in terms of um, finding the the thread that, you know, goes through all of these things, something that has been kind of uh, really on my mind lately, I, I believe it was Carl Jung. He talked about how, you know, culture is always moving us in the direction of like freeing us from our most animalistic instincts, you know, trying to uh, trying to allow us to gain deeper wisdom and to to live better lives, uh, not necessarily. Uh, well, yeah, I'll move on from that. So one of the things that he said was that as our you know as our technological intelligence increases, obviously we're moving in the direction of like everything that we do technologically now seems to be moving in a dangerous direction. Not everything, but, but, you know, like look at what we've created with technology. It's absolutely insane. You know, we've come to a point in humanity where, you know, a war isn't just a war because there's also the threat of entire annihilation of the human race, right? Because we've got these insane weapons. And so Carl Jung believed that 
we really need to get wise very quickly. Otherwise, we're going to be at a point where our technological proficiency does not match our wisdom. And when that happens, everything possibly terrible could go wrong, you know. And so I'm interested in, you talk about, you know, uh, this cosmopolitan idea of everything is connected, seeing how we're all actually, you know, trying to act the best for yourself is acting the best for uh, everybody if you're doing it in the right way. It seems to me like the world at the moment, because information travels so quickly, where once we might have just seen what's happening in our local community, now we can see the entire world coming into alignment with each other, you know, and, and it's almost like, it's almost like you could say, okay, in the next 100, 200, 300 years, maybe we'll reach that point of eudaimonia on the global scale, or maybe it's all going to go horribly wrong. Right. <laughs> and so I, I, I wonder, um, you know, you've obviously got a purpose that you're trying to solve with this book, which is trying, well, you know, we've been talking about that, but also I'd like to you to talk a bit more about it. How do you think this book contributes to uh, allowing people to gain deeper wisdom that can potentially help them to play deeper and more meaningful roles in the global community? Cause things are changing so quickly. Uh, how does your book do that in terms of helping us all to, to, oh man, I, I don't know if I'm getting this question right. I don't know if. <laughs> I, I um, think I know where you're asking, so I'm going to answer something. Yeah, please. Cause, cause I, I, I thought I knew where I was going, but then I, I need, I need you to help with this. Um, to me, it's a question, isn't it? Again, I, I, we, Leah and I say in the chapter one, we don't have the answers because we always say like, well, put yourself in my shoes. My feet mm. are smaller than your shoes. Does that, mm. is that helpful? <laughs> Why don't you put yourself in your own shoes and think it through? So when you talk about technology, it's a simple question. Do we create technology to make the world a better place? Or do we create technology to make more money? Mm. And if we create a lot of technology, and it's not all technology, but we create a lot of technology because we want to be innovators for innovators' sake and we want to make money, is it any surprise that the world is not prioritized? To me, it's of no surprise at all. But what it would call an entrepreneur to do is say, what are the stoic virtues? What does it mean to me in my role? Am I creating T-shirts just because it's another product on the market? Or am I creating T-shirts so that, one, that it shows people that you can create T-shirts that are fair trade or organic or that don't abuse people, so show people a good example of how clothing is more than the, t you know, the logo on my chest. Mm. It's something say, says something about my values and therefore my virtue. Because then you'll hear other people say, wow, your t-shirts cost 25 euros or 25 Australian dollars or something. And my t-shirts cost like five. So I can sell more. And say, yes, but that tells you something about your values mm. and my values. So you actually bring a bigger message because you're saying to people, we don't need to race to the bottom. We mm. don't need to pay the person, whoever they, wherever they make it, doesn't matter. But the cheapest that we, that we can possibly get away with. Because actually, I'm gonna tell my audience, whoever your audience is, I, this t-shirt is slightly more expensive. You know why? Because no one was abused making it. You know why? Because it's a stoic t-shirt. Mm. It doesn't just say stoicism on it. It doesn't just say like, I don't know, Kai on it. It says something much greater. 
because mm. you start to ask yourself the question instead of saying how can i make as many t-shirts as cheaply as possible to sell as the most t-shirts you start saying how can i grow how can i grow a community that understands strike values from the inside of a t-shirt out like literally mm. from the beginning to the end so that when they walk around in it they're not just claiming their strikes by word but the claiming themselves by strike by action and attitude mm. and they're willing to pay an extra five dollars and have one less t-shirt <clears> than they would have otherwise bought because they see something more fundamental and mm. that tells you something different about you as an entrepreneur if that would say your market because mm. you're saying i am not just here to make money i'm here to make a statement it is not my statement it's not me per mm. se is that i value the four virtues and to me in my role they are this and a lot of technology or a lot of innovation is just done to either look good or make money. And I have no issue with making people making money. Of course, they need to make money. We're in a capitalistic society. Hmm. But when that is the main or only goal, when success as a status means being like earning the most money, that's when we lose. That's, again, the zero-sum game. You think about how many people have been laid off during COVID. And you hmm. think... So your shares are higher than they've ever been. Your share price is higher than it's ever been historically because of injections from governments that possibly didn't think that through very well. And yet you laid off 3,000 staff. Hmm. Is that, what values are you showing me? So I think it's simply a question. Like technology is not a negative thing or a positive thing. It's an indifferent, right? It can be negative, it can be positive. But the way that, and we can make mistakes, you can still have stoic values and like make mistakes, but you own them and you, you say, I'm responsible. I didn't realize, for example, that that t-shirt was going to be made in a sweatshop. But the minute I realized, we changed that, we pivoted and we're not afraid to pivot. And then mm. you're saying something again about courage. So I don't think technology per se is the problem. I think the problem is that we are producing technology on the basis of hedonic principles i.e., pleasure of being the best mm. at something which is not eudaimonic at all not mm. being the best in terms of how do we move towards justice but how do we move towards a higher share value and that's yeah. i think that's the challenge that you're asking yourself but again i don't have the answer i just have the question like as an entrepreneur what question do you have to ask yourself that goes beyond the typical how much money can i buy a t-shirt for and how much money can i sell it for yeah yeah no, this is yeah. This is such an important stuff, right? This is this is the role that philosophy plays in our society. Is is you know we go around doing all all these things and and you know pursuing these certain aims. Philosophy looks at us and says what it actually means about us that we do those certain things. And so, you know, I'm probably going to have a similar situation to the last question where you'll have to help me out to draw the the dots here. But there's two points I want to make here. Firstly. One quote that you get from Epictetus in the book, which um, which I had forgotten, but a really great is where he kind of talks about how grammar can teach you, uh, you know, the letters and the words to use in the sentence and everything, but it won't tell you what you should write. You know, it w will not tell you that. And so, to me, this is this is breaking the world down into okay. Well, you kind of have what is there, but then you have what that stuff means and what it means that you do certain things. And, and I think that philosophy and theology and th these worlds deal in that world of meaning, right? What does it all mean? And, you know, if I can relate it to virtue, um, I actually think just looking at myself, you know, and, and my own path, I think that, and, and other people who I've worked with and everything, you know, I don't think that people completely trust 
that to act in a virtuous way would be better than doing what they're doing now. And that's why I think there is actually an element of faith involved in saying, well, okay, I'm going to be spending more money on these clothes. I kind of have to trust that if I do that, then what I get in return will be better than what I had, you know, spent $5 on instead of 25. It, 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 virtue is this thing that, you know, you have to practice it in order to see the results, but sometimes it takes a leap of faith to actually start practicing that thing. And I'm not, I'm not reduced. I don't want to reduce virtue to a clothing choice decision. And I know that's not what you're doing uh, because there are deeper and deeper layers. But I think that the thing that I'm wondering here is, um, you know, how, how can you encourage people to take that leap? At, actually, I'm going to say one thing. I'm so sorry. I have to say one more thing. I guess the way that I've experienced this, and 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 I think that this is a useful way of looking at it. Um, Jim Rohn said, "Whenever two numbers come into your head, when it's like tipping somebody, or you know, whether, whether it's um, you know buying a lower quality item over a higher quality," he he said, "Always pick the higher number." And the reason he said that was because if you get a great shoe shine, he gave this example, if you get a great shoe shine and you're thinking, oh, should I give a dollar tip or $2 tip? The amount of internal joy that you will buy yourself by choosing to tip $2 instead of one, just $1, one extra dollar you have to spend. But the amount of joy that you'll get for the rest of the day, knowing that you spent an extra dollar on a tip to give somebody a you know, tip for a good job done, you're literally buying yourself this internal recognition that I did something good there. That's great. Right. And, and it feels good. I think that that relates to virtue because we need to see that when we do something in the proper way at the proper time in the proper place with the proper mindset, there is a true distinct value that comes from that as, as a result. Right. And I wanted you to talk about that as well. Like, like how do you encourage people to take that leap of faith and, do something that they know would be right, uh, even though it might be contrary to how they've always lived their life and contrary to the society's aims. Okay, let me say something that's a bit of a taboo. <laughs> Most Stoics, contemporary Stoics, don't believe that virtue is the only good and vice is the only bad. Yeah. They just don't. Why? When I, I actually did a talk with Philadelphia Stoics about slavery. I said, okay, you really believe that virtue is the only good and vice is the only bad. So slavery, it's indifferent, right? And they go, yes, if I were a slave, no, 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 that's too easy. Mm. I'm talking about if you're a slave owner. Mm. If you really believe that virtue is the only good and vice is the only bad, then you believe that slavery as a slave owner, not just as a slave, is an indifferent. And until you understand why that is the case, I cannot persuade you to give a dollar. So let me give you like this, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy. If I gave you the option, I kill you or you become my slave. Slavery becomes preferred indifferent if you want to live. So we mm. always talk about in stuck community, slavery being a preferred indifferent. I'm like, really? So if I choose to murder someone you love or you become my slave for eternity, which one do you prefer? Most people will say, not all, but a lot, will say, please don't kill my wife. Mm. I'll be your slave. Mm. So then it becomes a preferred indifferent, right? Virtue will never become a preferred indifferent. 
it will always be virtuous or I prefer indifferent. It will just always be, I say, do you want justice? No, no, you know what? I don't want more justice. No, I don't want justice. You'll never say it. It will never be a preferred indifferent or a preferred, um, at least preferred indifferent. It will always be virtue. And people mm. don't get it. So mm. I gave him another example and I said, okay, imagine I temporarily have to become a slave owner. I have to buy you to get you out of a situation that you're going to die. So imagine I am in a, I don't know, I am, I'm working in a concentration camp. For some reason, I've been assigned there. I'm a soldier. And I say, Simon, I need to buy you. You need to become my slave because it's the only way that I'm going to get you out of this concentration camp. And I need you out of the concentration camp because I believe that you're the only soldier that's going to help me in this revolution. Mm. I've just bought you, right? I'm mm. now a slave owner. But if I bought you with the virtuous intention of setting you free so that you can become my captain in a revolution against the people who own the concentration camps, that means that being a slave owner in that instance, it could be very well a virtuous action. And until mm. we fundamentally understand that slavery, being a slave and a slave owner, depending on the intentions, are an indifference, I cannot tell you why you should pay $2. Once you realize that this fundamentally, typically often ugly thing is any different for the reasons I've just explained, you will see why $1 is indifferent. Because until you understand that slavery is indifferent, you can't understand. Sorry, you, you just cut out that until you understand, until you understand that slavery isn't indifferent, you, you, you can't understand, understand what. Yeah. $1 is indifferent. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, um, uh, yeah. It's, it's obviously it is a taboo, but I see what you're saying, right? And, and I think that this relates to another idea that you had in the book, where, you know, you're talking about how nobody is exempt from vice, and nobody is, uh, oh, what is it? I wrote it down here. Um, uh, yeah, nobody is immune to vice, and nobody is excluded from virtue. And I think that there's a narrative going around today, which is a clear sign that we have lost sight of what true virtue is, which is, you know, if you're wealthy and you have a lot of money, you're purely evil. And if you're, you know, and if you're poor and you're fighting the fight, then you're purely virtuous. You know, there is that kind of narrative going around. But, but I, I really like that you had that conversation saying that, hey, listen, everywhere amongst all humans, there is vice and there is virtue. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I can say, for example, that I'm seeing a lot of cancel culture. A mm. lot. I mean, I'm an academic. It's, it's, you have to be careful what you say. Because if you say, quote, unquote, the wrong thing, you're a terrible human being. Yeah. I have seen people say, for example, to me that recently that I'm a colonizer, for example. Mm. Like, Why do you say that? Because you're British. Well, actually, my ancestors were Irish. Mm. Right, they came to Britain because of the potato famine. I know that because you know my mum really likes family history. Mm. So in Stoicism, we don't we don't take people's sin, right? The sin is not even a concept that we that we have. And yet I'm seeing a, a dialogue or even a monologue in certain areas about why certain people of a certain country or a certain skin color or a tone or ethnicity or language should apologize for something that somebody did 400 years ago. This yeah. is not stoic. Stoicism yeah. says, what are you responsible for? And virtue signaling is vicious because it's yeah. the opposite of fundamentally going into deep into what is justice. 
There yeah. is no justice, in my opinion, in 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 publicly shaming somebody for something their great 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 grandparent did. Yeah. What you can, what we should be saying is, okay, you definitely acquired wealth because of your great 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 great. What are you going to do with that wealth today? That's going to make the difference because I can apologize. That doesn't mean that my bank account gets any smaller. Yeah. It's more like, what can you do today to make it different? And I'm still mm. saying, well, you should apologize, you know, because your country was involved in the slave trade. I'm like, I don't want to apologize for the slave trade. I want to ensure that modern slavery is eradicated. Mm. What? Well, you just say it was indifferent. Yes, but modern slavery, uh, the way that, it, you know, I just gave you a very rare example of where it was virtuous. Most forms of modern slavery mm. happen to be vicious and i want to do my part in society to eradicate that and people said well modern slavery doesn't exist i'm like really you you, you don't buy it from amazon prime like mm. they may earn a wage but the way if the wage is lower than the expenses that they have to pay out to eat and have shelter they'd actually be better off as a slave in some ways mm. right because if i said mm. to you i'm going to pay you five dollars an hour but and you earn 400 australian dollars a month and you know that to live in brisbane for example you need two thousand dollars you'd actually be better off being a slave in terms of having your own house and food. Yeah. But we just say, well, we, I give them a little bit of money so I can get my crap to my house 24 hours quicker and I'm a good person. Slavery mm. is the one that's wrong. Like, actually, the slaves are better off. And yeah. we don't like hearing that. Yeah. But that's, that to me is, is the idea of that virtue being knowledge. To mm. know what is virtue is to know what is just and to know what's unjust and to know that a mere label so you say, well, that's not slavery. I pay someone. But if you pay someone less than it costs them to live, they are worse than a slave. I often say mm. an intern is worse mm. than a slave because they mm. have to pay to get to work, pay for their sandwich, pay for their transport back home, pay for their gas, their electricity, their water, their mortgage, their rent, whatever, and they are nothing. And yet that's mm. a perfectly acceptable form. And I'm, talking, I'm not saying intern for a week or so so you can test if they're any good. I mean, like mm. consistently putting someone as an intern for months on end. And yet we find that completely acceptable in society. Mm. And Stoicism says, what are the principles? Like remove the label, remove the label, which is why in, in you know, the ancient world, you had to say, when I say slavery, what I mean is this, and you had to define it. When I said racism, what I mean is this, and that is not happening right now. We're not having a, let me just clarify my definition. So we're even discussing the same thing. Because mm. in Stoicism is not to have an argument for argument's sake, it's to have a discussion, a Socratic dialogue to find out how we can reduce injustice in that path right now. And I'm yeah. not seeing that on social media. I'm not even seeing that in academic circles right now. I'm seeing labels being bounced about. I'm seeing careers being ended because we're not defining terms and seeking a solution. What we're seeking in a lot of cases is how can I make myself look good? Mm. And I'm like, oh, the lack of self-control. Yeah, yeah. Your, your parent, your daddy issues are causing major issues. You've just, <laughs> you've just spat out all your parent daddy issues because your dad didn't give you enough attention on Twitter and you've just intoxicated a whole load of people with the issues because your dad didn't care about you when you were five. Yeah. It's the lack of self-awareness and self-control. And that has to stop. And I think stoicism fundamentally if we really understand what virtue is, can bring dialogue and bring um, transparency 
because that's also lacking in whatever dialogue, whether it be left wing, right wing, academic, uh, or not so. You're yeah. nodding. I think you understand why. I'm- oh no, no, yeah. Th- this is you know everything you're saying there. I completely agree with it. I think that definitely one thing you said there's so important. I think one of the biggest problems that we face today is that people aren't willing to start a discussion by defining the terms. What is virtue truly? You know what and and you could have that conversation for 10 years and then start your conversation about racism. (laughs) And then what is racism? You know, you'd have that conversation for another 10 years and then, you know, it's, it's, and, and this, this idea that you definitely see this today, people completely misinterpreting what it means to be virtuous or to be good or to aim at the highest good. And, uh, and, and that's why I think, you know, that, that's why I think, as a result of hearing you talk about slavery, you could assume that there's going to be one guy in his basement, some old Confederate who completely misinterprets that in one direction. And then there's going to be some, for want of a better term, snowflake who dies because, you know, because, I don't <laughs> want to melts. use that. Who <laughs> just, yeah. just melts into the ether because of the horror of what you've just said. And neither of them understand correctly what it is that you're actually saying because you're walking a middle way that says, uh, listen, you, we've all got we've all got fine points here, you know. But at the same time, we need to start by defining exactly what it is that we're talking about, and the rage that we feel today, you know, um, it's 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 just it's it's so interesting to see, you know. Going back to my earlier point, I'm really interested to see what happens with technology and and social media and. Um, as the whole world comes into alignment, because, um, you know, I know, for example, that, that France and even Australia to a certain degree has kind of already been in that position where they're saying, Hey, listen, America, we don't want your like woke politics because it's not actually a part of our culture. And it's actually turning out to be kind of a, an insidious thing. If you look at the, what's happening underneath, Right. And I think that the more we can move in that direction of talking about what is virtue, what is goodness really at, at the core of it, and that's the world of philosophy. And I, I want to I come back to one thing as well here. We talk about living in agreement with nature. And uh, you, you meant, okay, because I know you would do this to me, I'm going to do it to you. You, you said something that I actually disagreed with and I'm going to bring it up. Right. But, but I, I think I know what, just now, sorry. in the book, in the book, in okay. the book. Okay. All right. Now I think I know what you're saying, but, but also I want to give you a chance to talk about it. Cause I think it's an interesting discussion. You said uh, you're talking about how, you know, you believe that living in agreement with nature uh, should lead us to, uh, I guess, having a, a, deeper connection to our environment, meaning we want our environment to be, uh, to, to reflect the kind of world that we want to live in. And, and that comes from our action, you know, so you don't want to pollute the planet. So great, you know, partly what living in agreement with nature means is obviously take care of the world that you live in because it's, it's, it's your bedroom, you know. Um, now, one thing that you said there was, okay, well, what that means is if you're an artist, consider, you know, putting environmentally conscious lyrics in your music, or if you're, you know, um, a, a scientist working on, basically we're saying these professions, here's how you could then move towards, um, a, 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 you know, a greater environmentally conscious world. Now, what I would say is I think that that takes the step just, just, I think 
it steps a tiny little bit too far in that what I would say is if you're a musician, be a musician. Whatever your music is, be that, right? If you're a scientist, be a scientist and be interested in exactly what it is that you are uniquely interested in. And to that point, bringing it all back in, philosophers need, you know, if you're a philosopher, teach us what virtue is. If, if that's what you're uniquely interested in, if that's your job. And in the same way, if you're a theologian, if you're a pastor, teach us what God is. Like, I, I want to know, I, I want to know from the experts in these field, what they are interested in finding out and what they uniquely can bring to the, uh, uh, to the table. And I think that when you say, uh, you know, well, you know, musicians write about this or, or I mean, yeah, like sing about this or writers write about this, that goes into the world of potentially propaganda. Whereas to me, the idea of living in agreement with nature actually means what is it that you're good at, that you have a talent for, that you're genuinely interested in pursuing, that you, if you sat in that seat in the theater of life, it would contribute to everything in a positive way. Do that. I'll stay out of your business. <laughs> you know you know what I mean? Like, uh, I'll stand back while you do that and I'll do what I'm good at. Um, I don't know. I want to give you a chance to discuss that because I might be misunderstanding completely what it is that you're saying. No, I agree with you to a certain extent. Like, I don't think we're in much of a disagreement. I would say yeah. one caveat, because if I said that my skill was being a critical race theory academic and that I can do that really, really well, then actually what I'm propagating isn't living according to nature. So that only works. Yes, I agree. I agree, yes. And I think you agree. So that's the only yeah. caveat. So if you're telling me that I'm a top musician and I want to write lyrics and I fundamentally understand what indifference are, and I fundamentally, at least it comes up, I'm not saying you always get it right, mm. then I have no disagreement with you whatsoever. Mm. What I wanted to give with Leia was the example of if you want, to, if part of your living according to nature is to be more environmentally focused and you happen to be a musician, mm. that's how we would do it. That may not have come across as well as it should have done, um, in which case. No, I'm sure I'm I, sure I can I'm see reading, why you're yeah. saying, like, well, that's fine. I mean, it may well have, obviously, my, our leaning, Leia and I have that leaning towards the environment. So, of course, yeah. it would come out in the way that we've written it. But yes, if you're telling me, uh, I'm not particularly, I mean, I'm, you might say to me, oh, yeah, I, you know, my T-shirts are fair trade and they're organic, but I don't really want to say, you know, sing Kumbaya and let's, you know, let's all be environmental. Um, that's not really what I was trying to get at. It was more like, mm. okay, be conscious. You don't have to literally like, let's recycle in your music, right? That, that, <laughs> and I think that would be ridiculous. Be funny. I, I just, I read that and I couldn't imagine a more boring world than where every musician is singing about the environment. Like I just, just, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but I see what you're saying now. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's I, about <laughs> being conscious of, of, cause, cause you're so right. You know, like there are certain professions where like, and aims where you're like, it's not good enough to just say, well, I'm interested in this and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I'm sure Hitler said the same thing about his journey, you know, and look how Pretty great that turned out. Um, and so, <laughs> and so, you know, for me, it, it seems like um, it, to that point, what I would say is, hey, if, if you're in the world of academia, but you're not a philosopher, that's not your interest, but you're in, say, science, you better be talking to some philosophers about what it means to be virtuous and what it means to you. You better be reading some philosophy or some, and you better be, you know, checking out some poetry to learn, you know, what they see in the world and what, what they're trying to teach. And, and that seems to me to be the purpose of say a liberal ed, ed, liberal arts education is to awaken people to the, to the rich value that exists in 
all of these different kind of humanities, right, that can teach you about what's the proper aim. And that includes theology and philosophy and science and music and art and all these things. To gain a deeper understanding of all that is to learn the pathway of humanity and it is to take in the best of what we have given. And and so, yeah, like to your point, I think that people really need to question, you know, like it's not good enough just yet. I would be incorrect in saying that it's good enough to, you know, just go in that direction that pulls you forward, uh, you know, and, and, and to, to be purely devoted to that. But yeah, I do think that we need to allow people the space to say, well, whatever it is that I do, I'm going to do that. And, and you can take that information and do what you will with it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I just had the caveat, like you have, so, you know, if I was a critical race theory academic and I fundamentally understood virtue, mm-hmm. that would be really good because I would highlight, okay, I need to be reasonable. I need to be fair. Yeah. Right? I do not create justice by propagating injustice against a group that I don't like. Yeah. That's, that's the problem I have with, with critical race theory, not particularly the individual, but the, the idea is that to create justice for one group of people, I have to create injustice for another group of people. I have mm. to kind of balance the books. And that's not, that's not conducive to discussion. You say, no, I do need to make, you know, certain people where there are certain privileges in society when you are, say, male, straight, white, whatever, it would be rich. But I don't need to, to get, you know, to become, I don't know, even very zealous about it and penalize them for whatever wrongs I think they did. And that's mm. the problem when you think, the reason, the reason why I think I like Larry Becker's uh, A New Stories, and the problem with it, there's one fundamental problem is that if it does go, if I'm really good at this, I should therefore do that. So if I'm a really good sniper, I should just do that sniping very, very well and not mm. consider about, okay, but who possibly should I use my sniping skills against and why? Mm. So it is, it is fundamentally important that I question that. And, there, you know, there is this possibility of scientists going towards, you know, philosophers, but philosophers need to go towards scientists as well, because mm. that's where the certain facts can only be found in science. I mean, like, you know, like how, how, what is the tensile strength of a, of a uh, bridge? Now, mm. philosophy won't tell you that, but that's still fundamentally important if I don't want people to collapse, and the bridge to collapse and people to die. Yeah. So I completely agree with you that there needs to be this sort of, um, cross cross or pollinization of ideas. And that's why yeah. Socratic dialogue is the fundamental methodology for stoicism. Mm. And that's not what, yeah. we think, what I mean by, you know, let's have a conversation on Twitter. No, to really have a debate about what we mean, why we mean it, and, and what does it mean uh, in my life as a musician? So yes, you're absolutely right. Singing about mm. recycling is not helpful. Mm. But you shouldn't need, to, if you're thinking about recycling, you fundamentally mis- misunderstood what I meant when I said live according to nature, because you might sing about the beauty of the bird song. Mm. You might sing about the beauty of, you know, being on surfing in the ocean. I mean, if you want to surf in a nice ocean, I know Australia's had, you know, a lot of people, you know, um, surfers against sewage. Mm. That's still singing about the environment. So I'm not saying that yeah. you should sing about doing that. But if you're a surfer as well, you'd be really, you know, It'd be great if you could sing about mm. surfing in the pristine waters mm. and, and, and saying that that matters because yeah. that would be something that talks to you. So, yes, if you're just doing it for mm. propaganda's sake and there's enough eco-warriors, quote-unquote, out mm. there that are doing just that, they, they're just screaming at people because it's another form of virtue signaling. So you can use, yeah. Yeah. You can use any justice cause, you know, whether it be you know, using racism for your own, you know, your own gain. I've seen that. 
using mm. you know, definitely as an environmental scientist in my time, seeing people use the environmental thing for their gain to make themselves feel better. And I think yeah. I said it before, like I'm vegetarian. So how do I make people vegetarian? I invite them for dinner. Mm. I don't need to tell them what to do on a day-to-day basis. I don't need to get angry with them because they ate a, a burger at McDonald's. They just, they just yeah. don't know have the knowledge that I have about how McDonald's has in historically produced meat and how that's a massive problem in the Amazon rainforest. Yeah. And it is my job as an environmental engineer to tell you that. And what you do with that is your choice to a, to a you know, reasonable extent. So I, I think we're actually in agreement. I think that there's just yeah. two caveats that need to be added, a caveat on your part. Yeah, definitely. And a caveat on mine. But I hopefully mm. the audience is going, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense. And that's exactly why this, this, this podcast today makes sense because it's by drawing out the things that are not so evident in my work and asking me exactly what I mean and then mm. throwing it back to you and go, what exactly do you mean? That yeah. we stop making mistakes and saying, you should just do whatever you should do because that's a very uh, Lawrence Becker kind of way to look at it. And that's why I've always said, or well, often said at least, that taking out stoic theology is so dangerous because then all you're left with is if you're a really good sniper, then snipe well. <laughs> like, mm, yeah. This is the problem because you become your own yardstick. And so I yeah. said the other the other day, but when I gave the example of rescuing you from a prison, prisoner of war camp. I am my own moral yardstick in my sense, right? Because I can only make that decision for me to decide to rescue you. And you, I do that by buying you, buying you as a slave and then, you know, nicely telling you afterwards, okay, you need to, let's re- lead a revolution. But I am also aware as a stoic that just because I think that that's the yardstick, that isn't the yardstick. The yardstick is logos, it's reason. And if someone can argue with me a more reasonable way that doesn't involve making you my slave for 24 hours so I can get you out the camp, mm. then I should be open to that because it's reason that dictates why mm. I do. It's mm. not what I think is right. And this is just based on what I think, right? So that's why I think it's so dangerous to say, if I do something well and I just and you just take it. So, but, mm. but I'm also aware that I will do something well, you get out of my way unless you have reason to believe that I could do something better, which is mm. more aligned to nature. And that's the other caveat I would say to saying, get out of my way. Because that's my mm. stars. Get out of my way to a certain extent, but use reason. And when I'm wrong, correct me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, this, uh, this idea of reason, can we can we dive into that a little bit? Uh, do, do you have time, by the way? I know we've been yeah. speaking for, are you sure? Yep. Okay, for beautiful. Audience, I always have time. Yes, I love it. Um, now, th- now, this idea of of, of reason, um, ha- I want to know how you see that. I know you've written about it in the book, especially how it relates to the logos, um, because that it seems to me, it seems like the removal of the kind of theological aspect of Stoicism uh, it alienate it alienates ourselves from the actual path that you would go to dis- to discover what reason kind of looks like. And to me, um, I've been really, I've been really interested in the, the commonalities between say, you know, stoicism and Christianity. And, you know, definitely one of the ideas in, in Christianity is that, that you've got like the king of the country, but then there has to be something above the king. Right, because otherwise we we turn to a tyrannical state and everybody worships the king and things go downhill very quickly. And so there has to be something above us. And the the way that I've kind of 
I guess you could say reasoned my way into that has been to 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 recognize that like Alan Watts said, you know, we weren't placed on this earth, we came out of it, meaning that I'm made of exactly the same stuff as everything else is. And I am just as natural a part of this ecosystem as the lion and the tree and the seed and everything. And what that in in a way means, and I believe that this is one of the reasons why Seneca, for example, was so inspired by watching the stars at night, you know, it, it, it gives you a sense of grandeur but also a sense of grandeur within yourself, meaning you like there's that you are so unbelievably complex and vast in your, in your, uh, I guess that kind of cosmic web, you know what I mean? That we talk about of the connection between all things. And you realize that uh, in a sense, what that means is we've talked about this before that there has to be, there has to be an, an internal sense or an internal compass that, gui- that can guide you as a human being if you're willing to see see that compass and, and get to know that compass. Because why would it be, you know, and it says this in the Bible as well, like why would it be that, you know, that everything else gets taken care of in terms of just knowing what to do and how to do it except for human beings? Um, sorry, I know this is, I'm going to ramble for a bit, but I, I promise I'll have a point. That there's another idea, obviously, which I, I am not qualified to talk about this, but I'm going to dive in there anyway. There's this idea of the fall of man and that our attention, our awareness is actually our biggest strength and our biggest weakness because we are aware and we are attentive. We can see things, but that also means that we've kind of lost that unconscious being that we once were in the state of, of being. It's like, you know, no longer can you just walk around the earth and you know pick fruit and just know exactly what it is that you're doing you know it's it's like we have we kind of have to decide going back to that idea of you know um uh, it might be harmful to just tell people where you can just decide exactly what it is that you want to do with your life and you can just do that because you have a natural being as well so for me that was a path that led me to really seeing the wisdom that exists in this idea of there has to be something bigger than you you don't have to believe that it looks like this or looks like that necessarily. Um, although I would be convinced of that if, if given a reasonable argument, but what that should do for you is that it should make you realize that you are a part of this giant system. And because you're a part of it, you actually have the ability to understand it because it is you and it is everything else, but it's also you. And it's almost a Gnostic pursuit you know, that idea that God is within you and around you, that, that a knowledge of the self is a knowledge of God. And to me, that has been a path that has led me to realizing that reason, the way that we speak about it, seems more like, and the Stoics did say this, look at the patterns. Look at the patterns of what's going on around you. Um, the patterns of meaning, not just like, not, not, not the specific elements, but what does everything mean? And, and to me, that's how I've kind of arrived at this place of wisdom. Uh, sorry, the, the, the reason being the commonalities that flow throughout the cosmos. And that's the logos. If you can see those commonalities, then you've got the logos. I want to know, how do you see reason and the logos as it relates to the theology of Stoicism? And how have you gotten there? Well, I'm interested hearing you talk. And I think that's one of the things that I actually really like about John Peterson. And again, people can hate mm. me for that. 
Um, there are many things, as you know, that I don't like about John Pearson, but one mm. of the things that I really do like is he's brought to attention to predominantly male, but not necessarily so. So mm. the idea that we are to here to search for meaning. So mm. I feel that kind of like some people have kind of lost the, lost the point of what he's trying to say. He's, I'm not going to yeah. say he's 100% correct. He's not a philosopher. And some of the times he philosophizes and he, he gets confused, but he's fundamentally trying to get people to understand the need for meaning. And he does it yeah. through archetypal discussions and I, we don't need to go into that here but i think that that's something that i really like about his work the honest mm. i think is intellectually honest but everything he, he might say is uh, but that particularly but i am just a person i am looking for an antidote to chaos right yeah. literally that's what he's i think his new book is is, is like that yeah. um i would say that he needs to look further into stoicism because i think that if you have a foundation in virtue yeah that oh there's so many commonalities it. yeah yeah. You can certainly hear, I don't think you can see the logos necessarily. I personally I think you can hear it. Because mm. sometimes you you want, you know, you you basically sometimes believe something's good for you when it's bad and vice versa. I think it's in your quiet spaces that you can hear the logos speak to you. Mm. I, I do think that you're right that if we don't understand these these patterns or at least try to look for them, because I don't think we fundamentally have to understand them, just appreciate that they're there. We get into a whole sort of subjective virtue, you know, virtue signaling rather than virtue searching and seeking mm. yes. mentality. It, it, it becomes like, instead of like say, okay, Jordan, for example, I agree with you on this. And fundamentally, I want to discuss with you how you managed to get a massive male character, you know, people who wouldn't even read to look at meaning. So mm. I like the way that you said, you know, the environment is your bedroom. So if Pearson, for example, said, your bedroom isn't literally your bedroom, which is one of my issues that I have. Like, it's not just, if you just think about your bedroom, if he'd be a bit more clear to me and said, your bedroom is the space that you occupy, not mm. physically the bedroom where if, if I tell you tidy up your bedroom, I don't necessarily only mean uh, put the, you know, put your shoes away, right? If he uh, had said, you know, your bedroom is the space that you occupy, the three-dimensional space, sometimes you're in your bedroom, sometimes you're in your kitchen. I just use your bedroom because that's where you are. Mm. You know, and that's what Seneca says, you can only sleep in one bed, so why have three? You know, it's, mm. it's that space, mental space. So I think that meaning is very fundamentally important. And if you think, in my opinion, that the only meaning is what science provides you, then you, I don't think you, I think you lose a sense of, a certain sense of wonder. It doesn't mean yeah. that science has no wonder. Of course it does, as I wouldn't be a scientist. Yeah. But I think that we've lost the idea of science shows us certain facts and how we interpreted the world. And that's really, really useful. I personally yeah. don't think science can give us a why. I mean, yeah. David Hume says like there's a fact, there's a fact value distinction. So that's when I, for example, I think personally, you know, Massimo Pellucci trips up saying, because it's a fact, I should derive a value. So I'm like, okay, climate breakdown or climate, climate, climate change in terms of global warming. If our bodies works better at two degrees higher, we would be burning every fossil fuel in the planet. That would be great. <laughs> mm. climate, climate, global warming is neither good nor bad unless you have a reason to work out, okay, so if the temperature warms, what happens to us? Does that matter? Yeah. Science can't tell you that. Yeah. It just tells you that the, the global temperature is rising. So you yeah. might say, well, no, it's not good because they were burning, you know, we have the forest fires and that would be a problem in the Australian Open couple, you know, last year. That's, that's problematic. And then you start to derive values. The problem is that if you just say the only facts are the forest is burning, that's bad. People say, well, why is that bad? Just, just burning, right? 
And that's why I think the sense of wonder and the idea that you said, like, you've got to tidy up, you know, your bedroom. And your bedroom is not just the four walls, but the whole mm. world. That comes not from your scientific understanding, because I know that you are very uh, analytical. It comes from your appreciation of, of saying there's something more here. It's yeah. not just the four walls of science. Yeah. That we must be objective and we must only focus on that. So personally, I, I think without that, we, without a sense of meaning, Stoicism doesn't make sense, right? Because I often say, okay, so let's have science. So the science says that the only good are four virtues. Is that what the science says? Because I have never in the history of my science career ever found a journal or any of any description that tells me that those four virtues are the virtues and that is based on fact. It's not. Mm. That is a faith step. That is based on the observations that we have made and not necessarily the measurements. So yeah. I don't think it can all boil down into what we call, what I, the, the ancients wouldn't call science because they said science is understanding the natural world. Hmm. The whole idea that there's a separation between science and religion, they wouldn't even understand it. That concept yeah. is new. And there's yeah. not a problem with it. There's not a negative necessarily because it had to happen that way because things like the church would say, well, you can't do, you know, you can't do an autopsy because the body is sacred. And yeah. so scientists are like, well, the spirit may be sacred, but the body it's just a body. So that's why we, I think that part of the reason the separation was significant. But I do think, as I said, like people like John Peterson and there's many others, but I know there's a lot of people who read John Peterson on your words, is correct in saying we need to find meaning and we need to map it. And that doesn't yeah. mean that I agree with everything that he says, but what I think is trying to bring together ideas that function for us and moving in that direction instead of having a massive argument about what we disagree with. So when I've been on like Facebook, I'm like, the first thing I ask people who have an argument with me is, could you tell me what we agree on? Because yeah. that's a that should be the starting point. Yeah. It should. Yeah. But we, now having a discourse is the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And and I couldn't agree more. And I think that you can definitely see that societies are starting to fragment as we move away from the traditions and rituals of our religious kind of ancestry, right? And start to just, you know, take on that, again, that kind of Americanized uh, version of individualism. But um, to me, you know, I think one thing that really changed me was actually seeing the truth in that statement that they used to make, which was that theology is the mother of the sciences and philosophy her handmaiden. That is, that is such a, because theology is the thing that's trying to figure out what is, what does this mean? You know, what does this mean? What is truly virtuous? And philosophy helps that aim, you know, because they're asking those same kinds of questions. And, you know, even Seneca said in his natural questions, I couldn't believe that I discovered this recently. Um, you know, it was just, it was so profound to me because he said some things that I had been thinking for the past year, but didn't know how to quite say, but he said it. And he said, you know, if you consider God as like, everything that is you know it's like the biggest possible thing and he said that if he had never dived into these questions of god he literally said his life would not have been worth living you know and what that says to me is that well okay well seneca is highly educated he had a rich life with crazy experiences he knew he knew evil and he was a student of philosophy so he knew good as well you know he he did know those things and here's Seneca saying, if I never started questioning this idea of God, my life would not have been worth living. And you think, you know, I just remember somebody joining my Facebook group and saying, I'm excited to join, uh, to, to be a part of a godless philosophy. And I remember thinking, 
No, <laughs> it's it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's it, it it like Seneca says. You know, it, it he talks about how you know philosophy should teach you how to worship the gods or God or whatever it is. It should teach you what is right, what is wrong, what to do, what to leave undone. And um, I, I'll tell you, man, like I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation because I see that you're asking all those same questions. Um, and, you know, to the point of uh, Jordan Peterson, one thing that he said that I thought is unbelievably uh, aligned with, with the Stoic perspective is that he believes that Ver- that lack of virtue actually makes people sick. And he said that he saw that in his clinical practice, you know, because people would come in and often what was happening with them was, you know, you look at their into their closet and there's a whole bunch of dragons in there. You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they're not doing or that they're doing that is wrong, that is is misaligned with virtue. And I think that ultimately, you know, that's one of the things that stoicism is trying to point out to us, right? Is that, listen, that there is health and vitality and flourishing in virtue. It's like, if there was one thing you'd want to do with your life, just try and aim at virtue in whatever you're doing, because that's, what's going to lead you to being a flourishing human being. Um, and I, and I think that in many ways, what you're doing with this book is you're continuing that tradition of encouraging people to think, deeper about virtue it's not just as you've talked about in the book it's not just about becoming you know a highly successful business person it's not it's so much more than that right and and i'd love you to speak to that because i know that you made this brilliant point in the book which is so important which is that you know stoicism is often mistaken for you know this business acumen you know and becoming uh, successful in that one domain Talk to me a bit about that and 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 how you see that playing out. And do you think that stoicism is moving in the right direction now, or do you think that we have a lot of work to do? I think stoicism is beginning to move in the right direction in terms of that you have these teeming problems, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that as we have more and more books out, so not just mine, we have a we start to have a, a, maybe not a canon, but certainly enough quantity of books to say what is stoicism and you can start to separate okay the house one holiday obstacle of the way one of my favorite books that's a really good introduction into why stoicism might be helpful for you but mm. i wouldn't call it now a stoic book mm. and then i you know i like how to be a stoic so for example is that okay this is really helpful for how one might be a stoic i i think like the book that i wrote doesn't tell you how to be a stoic because i don't think that there is a way of being a stoic but yeah. I do think in the beginning that might that framework might be helpful for you. Yeah. So in in our book, Leo and I, we gave I don't know if you noticed, but a lot of references so that even if someone had been really studied in stoicism, they were like, "Whoa, I didn't know about Stoics. Whoa, I didn't know about Panitis. And that's why A.A. Long endorsed the book because he was like, "You've got, you know, you can take a beginner and you can teach me something." Yeah. And that to me is like, wow, you know, you teach the most famous academic in the world. Some, something about stoicism that, that's what we wanted to do so i do i do think it's going in the right direction i am i am very optimistic because mm. i think we are finally reconciling with the stoic god i'm starting mm. to see i would even dare say massimo's kind of leaning that he's starting to reconcile with that that's my personal opinion he'll probably tell me that i'm wrong but uh, mm. before if i go if i go back two three years when we first talked no one talked about the stoic god yeah i, I certainly wasn't like, yeah 
you know, when did you want academics? I remember were sending me emails going, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm really glad. And they even said, I hope your career's not going to be ruined because of it. I even got that. I was like, I'm an engineer. Nobody cares about my stoic stuff. <laughs> and you couldn't talk about it. And then suddenly they're like, oh, an academic is talking about it because my career was not, you know, it wasn't required for me to be a stoic. It required me to do calculations in the resource consumption, if I'm honest. So yeah. I could, I had that freedom, to, complete freedom, which other academics didn't have because they're like, oh, if I talk about God, all that puts me in a different box. Oh, I might be able to do that. And that's not, that's not, I'm not judging them. What I'm judging actually is the structure in academia that says you have to do this, yeah. or is you're not a true academic. So I started to see the leaning away from the atheistic interpretation, which I actually have no problem with. If people are like, I hate God, there's nothing, I, I cannot deal with God, then don't, you know, then then read some other book, right? If, you, if you're yeah. open to, to some sense of spirituality, because really, to be fair, we did talk about that in chapter eight, and we take the whole journey, and we say mm. there is a spiritual element. So I say, if you don't like it, either don't read the book, or just read to chapter seven, because if you <laughs> read to chapter seven, you'd never ever get that extra sort of icing on the cake. And we did that on purpose, because we felt like if we came with the core principle of, of the state God in the beginning, people would like throw up in the bucket. So we're like, yeah. how, can we, how can we show you the whole way through? Like you want to know how the, the Greeks and the Roman Stoicism collide and how Stoicism becomes a canon? You've got that. You want to know about history? We've told you. You, you want to know something about boxing in the ancient world? We've got that as well. You want to know about British fires and racing drivers and the rest of it? We've got that. If you're willing to go a little bit deeper into, you know, the state God and eventually actually final chapter, uh, death, then that, that's something for you. So I do think it's going in the right direction because we're starting to be, to relax a bit. You know, we're not like chained to the, we have to be atheistic because we have to be an yeah. ounce to Christianity. We need to grab a people who have left Christianity and tie them to another ism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, we don't have to do that. And I think that's the only direction that we can go if we're going to be self-sustaining. Because I, I really get upset on a personal level when people say that if you're religious, you're stupid, for example. There are mm. many atheists that are stupid, and there's many Christians that are stupid, and there's yeah. many Muslims that are stupid. And there's, there's stupidity is an almost universal trait. Yeah. Why? Because it's a vice, ignorance, right? It's universally available to me. <laughs> yeah. So I often do ignorant things. Why? Because I'm not a saint. So I'm really, really pleased that I think we've hit a maturation point uh, where we can have this discussion where you uh, and others like you have gone, I'm not saying that, like Seneca said, like he mocks people who are like cut off their hands and there's a big, you know, like in a paragraph about this, I write mm. elsewhere actually. Like, you know, <laughs> I hide my that, hand tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I need to like cut off my hand and do these things, and that makes me like I need to punish myself. He said, "If that's what God is, that's not stoicism." Yeah. So I think we've got to that point where we can reflect and go, "I can take or leave the God, but my life is enriched, and I will fundamentally understand, like I said earlier, why something is indifferent and why something is something is a virtue." And I think yeah. until we get that core principle, we really believe that virtue is the only good and vice is the only bad. I, I don't think stoicism can work because that's hmm. the principles in which it stands. I don't know if I answered the question. But you you absolutely sure. did. And yeah, Kai, you know, I think this is a really good place to uh, bring the interview to a close. You know, I've got many, many more questions, but I think we'll save them for another day because I would love to have you back, obviously. 
Um, but uh, yeah, Kai, I think that what you've shown in this interview today is, you know, you've really demonstrated again that I think that you're one of the one of the few people who does really think uh, think in this way about stoicism, and you really do understand the ins and outs of like what is virtue, what is vice, this sort of stuff. And I think that, um, yeah, I've, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation, man. And I really enjoyed your book and I really want people to, to buy it. And I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, you know, because obviously I'm, I'm producing music and, and writing, writing books and stuff like that as well, which I'm, are on their way. But one thing that I've been thinking is you don't need a lot of decoration when you truly mean something. And so aside from all the decoration I just gave it, I do really want people to buy this book because I know who you are. Um, and, you know, I, I, I know what kind of person you are and I know what you've put into this book is, is really meaningful and useful. And I think that it's going to change a lot of people's lives. So go out there and buy the book people. And, uh, and Kai, is there anything else that you wanted to add before the end of the interview? Yeah, just uh, if they, you know, I'm very open, you know, if they want to email you and they have questions and that's, that's great. Hopefully, like if you if you uh, think, oh my gosh, this guy's crazy, then you re-listen to the to this podcast and see that it's a Socratic dialogue and that we don't have all the answers. And mm. yeah, and if you don't buy the book, that's fine. Just ask your local library to stock a copy. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. Like, if you don't have the money right now, and you may not have, like, ask your local library to stock a copy because you know what? That means more than you gets to read it, and that's mm. more important in many ways. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Kai Whiting, co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. Now, if this conversation doesn't make you want to go out and grab this book immediately, then I don't know what else will. And uh, conveniently, I've placed the links in the show notes below so that you can go and do just that. You can grab his book. And uh, and also, if you love the book, if you've already got a copy or if you love it once you've read it, make sure you give him a positive review on uh, Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you can review it. It will certainly be helpful. But nonetheless, thank you so much for listening to this episode and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Practical Stoic Podcast. Remember that you can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Simon J.E. Drew. There you'll gain access to many exclusive episodes that haven't been released yet, as well as over 200 episodes recorded before 2020. If you'd like to work one-on-one with me as you move towards your ideal, then you can go to simonjedrew.com forward slash coaching. But for now, I'll talk to you next time.